Riverside Church. It's great to see everyone out on such a another cold January morning, but uh, we're thankful that we can lift our voices to the throne this morning. Tonight, we are having a Creekside Prayer Night, so that is from 6.30 to typically around 7.30, about an hour long, chance to, to gather together, uh, lift the needs of our congregation uh, before the Lord. There are a lot of things happening, uh, people that are dealing with injuries, recoveries. Uh, Rita Westfall, we should lift her up in prayer. She broke her arm uh, this last week and uh, continued... Sorry, did I say... I... <laughs> Rita McLaren uh, broke her arm, uh, and uh, so we want to continue to, to lift her up. Also, we want to continue to pray for Aaron Westfall, still recovering from uh, surgery, uh, had his appendix removed. I think if there's opportunity, if you'd like to help out with a meal, take a look at the welcome table. There should be a QR code where if you'd like to sign up to help with that, you can do so. Um, and again, our hearts continue to go out to the Hoist family. Uh, very uh, beautiful and, and God-honoring uh, service yesterday, opportunity to hear from so many family members impacted by Paul's uh, legacy and, and uh, his testimony. So uh, we, we, again, we continue to lift them up in prayer. Uh, all these needs God knows about, he cares about, uh, and, and he, will, he will continue to be faithful. And then the last thing to mention here is that a week from today, after service, there will be a, a lunch for the Haiti team to recap uh, their recent trip. So that had originally been scheduled earlier in the month and was rescheduled due to some of the weather challenges. So that will be next week. Thank you, praise team. Also uh, wanted to add to the list that uh, Anne-Marie Runnels uh, kind of banged up her ankle, twisted her ankle going down the steps at home, and so she's uh, kind of trying to recuperate as well, so you we can be praying for her, and you can pray for Jill Cameron. <clears throat> Jill's, uh, Jill had surgery, knee surgery. So please be praying for her and her recovery. And if you are uh, Sunday school age and you want to go to Sunday school, uh, now's the time to be dismissed. So that's uh, up through fifth grade, is that right? Up through fifth grade, yeah. All right, invite you to pray with me if you would. Let's uh, go to the Lord. Father, what a powerful song 
uh, to remind us of the truths of your word and uh, the person and the work of Jesus and the destiny that uh, you, God our Father, have um, for us and you hold us in your hands. And I come to you this morning, I pray for these that we have mentioned from our church family and others, Lord, that we're not even aware of, that are convalescing at home, that are, I know a lot of people have been sick, some still are, and I just pray. I pray for those who are recovering from surgery, uh, for Aaron and Jill. Touch their bodies, Lord, and bring them a speedy and full recovery. I pray and ask that you would bring healing to Anne-Marie's ankle, that you would give Rita comfort, encouragement in the pain of her, her broken arm, and I pray that the surgery would go well for her. And for many others, Lord, I just pray for Gail and her family that are mourning the loss of Paul. I pray and ask that you would surround them with your love and give them your grace and your strength. And I ask now, Lord, that as the, the Word of God is read and preached, uh, that your Spirit would speak to each of our hearts in a way that you know we need to hear, that we would receive what you have for us, and that it would bring about the transformation, the encouragement, the support, the conviction that you know and you want for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you a question, but I want you not to really answer this out loud, okay? So this is uh, just kind of think about it. Okay, how would you compare Hitler to Billy Graham? Both humans, both men, okay? Maybe a few other things you would do. But if you think about it for very long, you, you, the, probably the biggest similarity is the the worldwide impact, one for good and one for evil, that both of them have had, okay? Both of them had a significant impact in, in the world in which we live. As, as Paul is uh, presenting to us in the book of Romans, beginning in chapter 5, verse 1, the prophet of the gospel, he began, as we saw last week in verses 1 through 11, and showed us the, the certainty of our salvation, that it's, it's secure, that we have peace with God forever. And that's a, a blessed, blessed prophet of the gospel. Now, in chapter 5, verses 12 through, through 21, he employs a comparison. A comparison of largely uh, dissimilar conduct and consequences uh, from the life of the first Adam and the life of the, the last Adam, from Adam and from Jesus. And he does it to show the, the gracious work of God through Christ, okay, on behalf of unworthy sinners. That's the center. We saw the certainty of our salvation. Now we see the center of our salvation is that glorious work of God through the person of Jesus Christ. But it's presented to us in this kind of odd comparison between these two people, Adam, who is the, the man who brought sin into the world, and Jesus, who is the man who brought justification into the world. And so God's bountiful grace, as we see it, I think, in this text, the thing that's been kind of exciting to me as you read down through, as I read through the text and as you listen to the text, as you watch the text, 
Notice how many times there is this abundance, this abounding, there is this grace, and God's grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, it it's permeates it. And so for those of us who are children of God, it is an encouragement to see the centrality of God's gracious work in Christ to pardon wicked sinners. And for those who don't know Jesus, this is an invitation. Not an appreciation, but a call to repent and draw near. So sinners can draw near and believers should be deep. And I'm Excited to look into Romans chapter 5, verse 12, where Paul provides us with these three facts that are based upon Adam as a type or as a foreshadowing of Christ to demonstrate uh, that our glorious salvation depends upon God's abundant grace to those who really don't deserve it. And it comes through the person of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, I'm in Romans chapter 5. If you don't, you have a phone or a device you can look at. If you want to look under the seat, it should be there. Or if you just want to look at the screen, it'll be printed for you on the screen. Uh, If you can read it there. I'm reading from the New American Standard. I say this every week. I know it's different than some of your translations. Some of you have the ESV. uh, Some of you have the HCSB. Some of you have the NIV. You have different translations, but just look at the screen, and that should be the text that I'm reading from. I'll try to tease out some of those distinctions. I won't be able to tease out all of them as we walk through the text. Verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man's one man, I'm sorry. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is the type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted in condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted in justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through one Through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in Adam, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is a lot there. And we're going to begin to unpack it. And so we see, I see, again, I, I'm just sharing with you what I see, okay? So this, this is my thoughts. Um, 
the first fact based upon this Adam comparison with Jesus to, to demonstrate our glorious salvation is that our salvation is predicated upon Adam's offense. In verses 12 through 14, it's all about Adam's sin. And there's two evidences that our salvation is predicated upon it. First of all, a declaration that our sin and death come through Adam. Verse 12, therefore, okay, the therefore refers back to what he's just said in verse 11, the reconciliation, eternal reconciliation to God through Christ. And it reaches forward to what he's about to say, the centrality of the one man, Christ, and his obedience in providing salvation to all humanity, providing the salvation to all, by comparing it to the, the, the far-reaching, the universal impact of the one man, Adam, who sinned, okay? Adam's disobedience. So you're comparing, and you're, you're comparing Christ's obedience that brought justification to all men as a possibility, and Adam's disobedience, which brought sin to all of humanity, okay? So as we walk through the text, I think it's important to help us realize that he sets the stage that he's talking about all of the broad scope of humanity, not like we looked at in verses 1 through 11, the particularity of us as individuals. So he's spreading it out and, and, and doing it that way. Okay, so through Adam, through Adam, sin entered into the realm of human existence because he messed up in the garden. And you can look it up in Genesis 2, 17 and Genesis 3, verse 6. Uh, and you say, well, yeah, but Eve is the one that ate the, ate the, and you say, well, Eve ate the apple. We don't know it was an apple, it was fruit, okay? So, yeah, she did, but he was there, and guess who God blamed? Him. <laughs> so, guys, man up, pull up your big boy pants, and realize that uh, uh, we bear responsibility, okay? Anyhow, through his sin, uh, his rebellion, it brought about a fundamental change to his nature, which was then transmitted, imputed, if you want to use that word, okay? It was, it was transmitted, that is, to all of his descendants. So every one of the descendants from Adam, which includes all of us, and every human since Adam uh, and Eve, it, it, it were it. So he went from innocence to inherent sinfulness. And his Inherent sinfulness has been transmitted, imputed to, it characterizes and it controls every human being since him. That's not a good picture. Uh, it's not a good thought. Okay. And then the text says, and, and death through Adam's sin spread to all men. So he messed up, sin entered into the world, and then, okay, Adam isn't the source of sin. Satan is the source of sin, okay? But it entered the world through Adam, all right? And so he, deaths through Adam's sin spread to all men without exception, which is just exactly what God promised in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. You eat of that fruit, you're going to die. So death spread to all men. Oh, yippee. Since Adam messed up, all of us are messed up and we all deserve to die. Thank you, Adam. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 6, the wage of sin is death. What we get for what 
we do for sin is death. And sin results in death. Now, what do you mean by death? That's a good question. And uh, three ways that we can understand what death means. First of all, death means spiritual separation, which was the immediate result of Adam's sin. He was spiritually separated from God. And because we are in Adam, we are spiritually separated from God because we are sinners. All right? It's a natural condition after he rebelled. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, if you want to reference, you can look at that because it says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That we're, we're, we're dead. Okay, we're separated from God. Secondly, physical separation of our body and our soul at the end of our earthly existence. Uh, yesterday, we had a funeral here for Paul Hoyce. And his spirit and body are disparate. They're separate right now as he waits for his resurrection body. And that physical death, as a result of sin, is inevitable for all of us. And you understand that, I mean, my conviction is that in the book of Genesis, death is a consequence of sin. And so there was no death before sin. Thirdly, eternal separation from God which is actually the, uh, the permanent extension of spiritual separation from God. And it includes conscious torment, Revelation chapter 21. So it's not just that we die and then, you know, like some religions teach that you die and that's it. Some religions teach that you die and then, uh, you know, you come back as a butterfly or something. And other religions uh, teach that, you know, it's just over. Christianity teaches that when we physically die and we're spiritually dead, then we spend an eternity apart from God. But if we're spiritually alive, we spend an eternity with God. And so this is death and what it does. Um, several people have been sick here lately, right? Uh, so you have one person comes into your house that's sick. And guess what happens in the house? <laughs> yeah, most everybody else gets sick. It's how it spreads. And this sin spread to all. And so what, what, what Paul does, you know, he talks about that. The reason that spread to all human beings without exception, if we are still back in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, he says, and so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. Hmm. Well, I wasn't there. You know, but the text says in, in Adam, all people become sinners by nature because we are this sharing the same nature as Adam. When he messed up, boom, it messed up everybody and everybody sense him. Utter depravity is in, if you will, our DNA. We are utterly depraved as human beings. You can read Psalm 51. David says, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. What was it? he's not saying that the that conception is sin within a married relationship no he's saying that by my very nature i i'm a sinner i was a sinner in the womb separated from god and we aren't sinners because we sin we sin because we are sinners yes when we we are sinners by nature and then we are sinners by choice as well but essentially it's not because I sin that I'm a sinner. I am a sinner, and that's why I sin. 
and you are too. That's what we are, separated from God in all of humanity. That's what Adam did for us, okay? So that's the declaration. Now he defends it in verses 13 and 14. A defense of universal death through Adam. In, In verse 13, he says this, For until the law was in in the world, for until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. All he's doing is saying that, look, you you don't you don't believe me that Adam through Adam's sin came in and death through sin? Well, I'll tell you what, sin was in the world, you know, even before there was a law. Even before there's a law that says you cannot you, you cannot covet, you cannot murder, you cannot steal, sin was in the world. And how does he know that? Well, sin was present before the law, but it wasn't specifically identified until the law came in. So people may have been coveting. I may have been, you know, I didn't know my attitude. Oh, I wanted, you know, I wanted your cow, uh, you know, because it was a nicer looking cow. I didn't have a cow, so I wanted your cow. Well, we didn't know that. He didn't know that was sin, but it still was sin. They just didn't know. It just hadn't been revealed to them before it was there. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever looked under a microscope. But, you know, a long time ago, people got sick, and they had no idea why they got sick. But then they invented these microscopes, and they could see microbes, and they could see bacteria, and they could see viruses. They could see stuff that was causing people to get sick. Well, people were getting sick way before they had microscopes. Just didn't know what was causing the sickness. Well, here's why we know that sin was in the world. If you look at verse, verse 14. Nevertheless, even it was imputed, it was not imputed, it wasn't counted against them. This is kind of a going back to Romans chapter 4, verse 15. In Romans chapter 4, verse 15, you didn't know you sinned until the, the law says that was sin. But we know that there was because what's the consequence of sin? Death. Now read verse 14. Nevertheless, sin, death reigned from Adam until Moses before the law. So uh, we know that sin was in the world because people died from Adam until Moses and the law wasn't given until Moses. So we know that sin was there and it resulted in death. That sin was present before the law is evident because death reigned. Not because, now why did, why did they die? Because they violated the law? No, because there was no law given. So they died, not because they violated the law, which hadn't been given, but because they were sinners. Thank you, Adam. Okay. I think that's what he's trying to say. So death reigned, and it reigned, even over those who didn't sin in the likeness of Adam, which was impossible because they were expelled from the Garden of Eden, so they couldn't repeat his sin. Everybody's a sinner. All humans are sinners, but have that nature. The universal impact of Adam's uh, sin points ahead, okay, in regard to the influence of the one act of Jesus. That's where the comparison is between Adam's one act of sin and Jesus' act of righteousness in going to the cross, which resulted in, in righteousness. And so, so secondly, uh, secondly, we see this. We see that our salvation is, is portrayed in the contrast between Adam and Christ. So there's two similarities, and this is in verses 15 through 17. Okay, the two striking dissimilarities, which is kind of wild as I read through the text. It's like we're supposed to be, he says at the end of verse 14, that Adam is a type of Christ, which a type is a foreshadow. It's supposed to be like, there's supposed to be a like. But then he goes on this diatribe in verses 15 through 17 about how they're all, they're not alike. They're, They're dissimilar. 
Stick with me, if you will. And, um, so the two dissimilarities. First, the free gift is not like the reach of the transgression. In verse 15, he says, But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more but do the grace of God and the gift by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. The but indicates a contrast, which is accentuated by, by, by the fact that he says it's not like. So something is not like. The free gift is not like of Christ. The free gift of Christ is not like the transgression of, of, of Adam in its reception and its results. Now, what's the free gift? Um, that's a good question. Uh, not entirely easily teased out, but I think it describes the entirely undeserved and unearned lavish gift of righteousness. That's offered graciously and inextricably linked to what Christ did on the cross. Now, why do I say it's righteousness? Look at verse 17. Chapter 5, verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. The gift of righteousness. Salvation, which is inextricably linked to this one act of righteousness, which is Christ going to the cross. All right? Um, gracious act. Marla and I were in a foreign country one time. We were eating at a restaurant, and some guy came up and introduced himself to us. And he was a, a local, and he introduced himself to us. And he had a, had a, had a son who was married but the son was a knucklehead uh, just kind of just going off the rails and he kind of shared his old dumped out his whole life his life story this son of his had had everything and he was just making a mess of things and so what did the guy do he bought his son a house on the beach it's like why do I say that because that's a picture of undeserved unearned lavishly poured out grace given to the guy. He didn't deserve it, didn't earn it, he shouldn't have gotten it, but he did. That's what Jesus Christ has provided for everyone in his salvation. We don't deserve it, we didn't get it, we shouldn't have it. And the four in, in verse 15 introduces the first distinction between the free gift and the transgression of the one, whereby the many, now, this is deep water here, so just hang with me. The many, if you read through the text and you take time and go slowly through the text, you will see the words all, you will see the words many, and you'll see, you'll see all men. So you see all men, all men, the many, the many, all men, the many. I've, this is my distillation of what I think is going on here. Now, uh, I, I say this with humility and, and open for discussion, but I think it seems to me that the many, especially if you see it here in verse 12, the transgression of the one whereby the many, which I believe means all humanity, whenever we see the word the many, because it is Arthurus, which means it has an article in front of it. It doesn't just say many people. It says the many. It says all men when the text is very specific. The one transgression is very specific. 
It's based on 5.12. What does he say in 5.12? Sin came into the world, and all men sinned. But, but, but the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one, the many, meaning all humanity, died. Which is what he said in verse 12. All sin came in and all died because of sin. So the many, I think wherever it occurs in this text, is referring to all of humanity. We'll have to explain it out uh, as, as we look at it in, in each individual situation. Well, I think in verses 5, 12 through 19, the many, if you look at verse 5, 15 and verse 19, the many, the many, and all men refer consistently and synonymously to the entire human race. Because he's looking at the big picture. He's trying to make a comparison between what Adam did and the impact on all humanity and what Jesus did and its impact on all humanity. And so he's using these references to speak of all humanity. The primary comparison of Adam's activity with Christ is the universal impact on all of humanity. Every human being, without exception, receives a depraved nature of Adam, resulting in death. That's the point of verses 12 through 14. Okay, And he starts again, if you will, in, in verse 15. Now, here's the amazing part. Amazingly, God didn't leave people in our helpless and hopeless state of being dead in Adam. He could have. But the text in verse 15 says, much more, much more remarkably, that's how I added to it, did God's grace and the gift of justification through Christ's gracious sacrifice, I think that's an accurate way to look at it, abound, it overflowed in generosity. That's what it means to abound. It's, it's, it's greater in generosity and energy to the many by breaking the power of sin and, the, and bringing abundant and eternal life to light. So what Christ did, he abounded in grace and mercy to the many, all humanity, in providing this opportunity. Uh, look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. It says this, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Lord and Savior, our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Uh, I live in Urbandale, so we've been to the, uh, the 4th of July parade in Urbandale. Okay, so we open on Aurora Avenue, we're standing along the parade route, everybody stand along the parade route, they come along and all the fire trucks and every float and every person, they're all throwing out candy on, you know, just lavishly dumping out candy for anybody to take. Now, usually the adults don't get in the action, you know, and the kids kind of, uh, but, you know, when, they, when the kids miss it, then the adults kind of scavenge. It's, it's available for all people who want to pick up the candy. But nobody benefits unless they pick it up. God's gracious gift of salvation through Christ offered to all humanity abounds much more than Adam's sin, but it benefits only those who receive it. And here I take you to chapter 5, verse 17, because it seems as a, a pivotal focus. If you look at verse 17, notice the text says, for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. The grace and abundance of the gift has been given 
but only those who receive it benefit from it. That's how I understand it. And then, secondly, the free gift is not like the result of the transgression. This is verses 16 and 17. Again, we see the gift is not like. So there's a contrast, which introduces the second distinction. Between the riches of salvation, the, there's a contrast between the riches of salvation through Christ and the result of Adam's sin. Adam's one trespass, he did it one time, okay? Adam's one trespass brought just judgment of condemnation upon everybody. Isn't that kind of wild? He messed up one time. Boom, we're all dead. Wow, that's serious. But notice, it says, the text says in, in verse 16, but, middle of verse 16, but on the other hand, so you got Adam's sin, which messed it up for everybody, brought condemnation, judgment of condemnation, but on the other hand, we have something else going on. In stark contrast, many transgressions brought in the free gift of justification. One sin, everybody's condemned. Many sins, free gift, justification, provided for all humanity. That's much more remarkable, okay, that God would provide that justification for all humanity through, because of many sins, it's more than that everybody's a sinner because of Adam. At least that's how I, I understand the text. Think of it this way. Man, this kind of gets me. Remarkably, God's hatred for sin pales in comparison to his love for sinners. His hatred of sin pales in comparison to his love for sinners. Only one sin brought condemnation to all. One sacrifice provided redemption. The possibility provided redemption for all. That's how I understand it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 uh, says, Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That's what he was doing in Christ, trying to not count their transgressions against them. That's the abounding grace. And so how does God's gracious provision of reconciliation to all become the possession of any? And I hope you see I'm trying to make the distinction between the provision and the possession. It's a universal provision, but as I understand it, now, some are going to disagree with me, but it seems that it seems, how does this provision become my possession? Well, verse 17, as he continues to tease out the difference in the result for Adam and Christ's work. If death reigned through Adam, and it does, it's a point repeated through this text, if death reigned through Adam, and it does, we most naturally expect, what would you think, what's going to happen? If death reigns through Adam, then what comes through Christ? Life reigns through Christ. But that's not what he says. 
Amazingly, in verse 17. Read verse 17 with me. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned. If death reigned through Adam, through the one, through the one, much more. Aha, love that word. Much more. Or that phrase. Twice Again. Much more. If death reigned through Adam. The shocking difference is, you would expect him to say that life will reign through Christ. If death reigned through Adam, you'd expect him to say life will reign through Christ. doesn't say that. He says much more of much more certainty is that those who receive, circle it, underline it, asterisk it, highlight it, those who receive God's abundantly gracious gift of righteousness through faith in Christ, which I'm importing a lot of what we've already talked about there, okay? If we, but it's also in the wording in the text. The, the abundantly, the graciousness of God abundantly provided through Christ. Those who receive that, those who receive it, will reign in life. Death reigns in Adam. But those who receive salvation by grace through faith in Christ reign in life. Death doesn't reign. We reign over death through Christ. To escape death's reign, we must receive the gift of righteousness. Uh, If you have your Bibles or your phone, you can flip back maybe if you can to uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We're dead in the water in Adam. But in Christ, we can reign in life, which means we have victory over the consequence of sin, which is death. We won't die. But not only will we not die, but we'll live victoriously. We have, we're victorious over death, but we're also victorious over the power of sin. Not just the penalty of sin, but the power of sin forever. That's grace. Abounding. Abundantly. On behalf of undeserving sinners. George Wilson killed a government employee and he was sentenced to be hanged. And at the time, President Andrew Jackson issued him a presidential pardon. The pardon was taken, it was written on a slip of paper and uh, taken to him. But Wilson refused the pardon. The U.S. Supreme Court weighed in on the issue. Can that be done? And the Chief Justice at the time, Justice Marshall, wrote in their opinion, a pardon is a slip of paper, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. Christ is offering us a pardon. All of us are dead in sin, 
Sin reigns, it rules because of Adam. But in Christ, we can be pardoned, but we must accept the pardon. Receive it. That's 517. Receive it. And if we receive it, then we reign in life. When we deserve death. If you don't know Christ, turn and trust him today because you are dead and you will die in your sin. According to the Bible, you don't have to believe me, this is the scripture. And if you aren't dead in sin because you are a believer, woo, yippee, skippy, uh, that's good news. Uh, we have uh, joy in Jesus. Because our life is reigning now. No death. Oh yeah, we're physically going to be separated from the body, but then we're going to be with the Lord. That's good news. Marvelously, those once ruled by death, who receive God's grace by faith, will reign forever. Victorious over sin's penalty. Over sin's power, and over sin's presence in eternity. Romans uh, chapter 6, if you have your Bibles in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, which we're going to get to next week, knowing this, that the old self was crucified with him, that our, our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. No longer slaves of sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see in this text that there, our salvation is predicated upon uh, Adam's offense. Salvation is portrayed in this contrast between Adam and Christ. And finally, we see that our salvation is punctuated by the comparison between Adam and Christ. And there's two comparisons. First, the result, results of one's offense with one's obedience. In verses 18 and 19, we read this. So then... As through one transgression, there resulted in condemnation to all men. Uh, whose transgression? Adam's. Even so, similarly but yet differently, through one act of righteousness, Christ's crucifixion, there resulted in justification, there resulted in justification of life. Or I think the ESV uh, says brought justification of life. Okay, It brought justification of life. So what's going on here? So then... Which is, uh, this is part of why this text is confusing. Because if you look back at chapter 12, or verse 12, I'm sorry, not chapter 12, verse 12. It says, therefore, just as through one man centered it into the world and death through sin. You could stop there and now pick up in chapter 5, verse 18, with the middle of verse 18, even so. So the comparison is between the one transgression and the one act of righteousness. Everything in between is kind of a commentary. But now he's coming back to it. And he's going to get to the comparison. He's talked about the, dis the similar dissimilarities, the differences. Now it's the comparison. Verses 18 and 19 provide a parallel summary. So uh, if you could put them both together, side by side, they're basically saying the same thing with a, a few different nuanced differences. So I'm going to treat them as, as parallel. You could say Adam's... Uh, they, they compare Adam's rebellious act to Christ's righteous act. Okay. 
verse 18. So then, as through the one transgression, Adam's rebellious act, that resulted in condemnation to all men, even so through the one act of righteousness, Christ's righteous act, that resulted in justification. If you work at verse 19, then you'd see a parallel. So that's what we're going to do. Adam's one transgression, verse 18, is paralleled in verse 19 with through the one man's disobedience. Transgression, disobedience, same thing. All right? So he's, he's paralleling that. And the result is condemnation to all. And why is that so? Condemnation to all is in verse 18. The, the, the parallel to it in verse 19 is the many were, were made sinners. Condemnation to all. The many were made sinners. Uh, see those two words again? All and the many. The many means all humanity. All humanity were made sinners. All condemned, all made sinners. They, they're parallel thoughts in those, in those two verses. They're made sinners. Adam's disobedience made everyone a sinner, uh, sinners of everyone, because we're guilty of sharing in his fallen nature. We are sinners by him. So then even so, the text says, middle of verse 18, I'm in the middle of verse 18. Sorry, you've got to keep with me here. Uh, I know it's tough. Uh, but uh, it's uh, not an easy passage to, to tease out. Verse 18 says, even so. So now we're in the middle of verse 19. Even so, through one act of righteousness, which parallels with the, the, the obedience of the one, one act of righteousness, the obedience of the one, same thing, okay? One act of righteousness, the obedience of the one, uh, which is what? What's the obedience of the one? What's he talking about? Christ's death on the cross. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Um, he says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and becoming obedient to the point of death. Oh, there it is. Now, Jesus was obedient to the Father in a lot of different ways, but this is the, the obedience of the one is particularly nailing down his, his crucifixion. Okay? And the result or was in verse 18, through the one act of righteousness, there resulted in justification of life for all men. What's the parallel in verse 19? Through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. All and the many, okay? The many will be made righteous. Oh, wait a second. Verse 18 says all are justified. All condemned, all justified. So does that mean because Christ died on the cross that every human being is justified? Well, I don't think it's saying that. Um, I think Paul is not saying when there's justification of life that he's not saying that in Christ's death there is a promise of salvation uh, uh, to all, thus contradicting his emphasis because all the way through the passage he's being uh, Romans, he's saying that you're saved by grace through faith. So he's not here now saying that everybody's saved. No, it would be contrary. Look at verse 15. It's those who receive it. Those who receive it. Those who receive it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everybody. To all who believe. To all who believe. That's what he's saying. But his righteous act, I think, if you look at verse 18, so then as to one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through the one act of righteousness, this righteous act, 
made provision for justification for life to life of all. It made a provision that all could be saved. It didn't save them. And the parallel result is that the many will be made righteous. All humanity will be made righteous. Oh, really? All humanity will be made righteous in God's eyes as a gift, not as a result of works, if they believe. If they believe. It's not that they're saved because they, are, and it's not because Jesus died that all are made righteous. That is provision, but not possession. The possession comes when they receive it. Hopefully that is clear as mud. Uh, but that's my best understanding of it, okay? And uh, it's, not, it's not easy. You can reread it and reread it, but as I said, I think all and the many refers to all humanity. Then we have to understand when Jesus comes in verse 18 and he says that one act of righteousness resulted in justification of life to all men means not that all men are justified as universalism, but that all, there's a provision for all to be justified, but they must receive it. And then you look at the parallel thought at the end of verse 19, the, the, through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. All will be made righteous. The humanity will be made righteous, but not unless they believe. I'm going to stop. You can, uh, you can ask me questions or, or deal with me later. Uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 5. I want you to look at that. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. There is never a place in Paul's teachings that he deviates from the fact that it's faith in Christ that effectuates our salvation or our righteousness. That's just the way it is all the time, okay? Think of it this way. Maybe it helps, maybe it doesn't. Adam is the source of rebellion for all humanity. Jesus is the source of righteousness for all humanity. In the same way that Adam is the source of condemnation, Jesus is the source of reconciliation. It comes from him. Now, verse 20. Paul shares the opposite side of verse 13. That's why this text gets complicated. Because he said in, in verse 13, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now in verse 20, he's saying, uh, well, uh, the law came in that the transgression might increase. Well, which is it? He's, he's, showing, he's, he's showing the opposite side of it. Paul shares the opposite side, revealing the law's inability. Because you know, people are going... Paul, you're crazy. Where, where's the law in this? We're, we're Jews and we know the law. Uh, you're, you're forgetting about the law. No, he's not forgetting about the law. He's showing the law's inability to save, but it's utility in showing us that we need to be saved. When the law came, sin increased. So if you're thinking, you're going, well, how's that work? Three ways. It identifies specific sins, increasing our awareness of what offends God. 
And you can go to, we'll be in Romans chapter 7. If, if I didn't know that the law said you shouldn't covet, I, I wouldn't know that if I wanted your cow uh, that I was uh, sinning. In my attitudes and my actions, when the law spells it out, then I know I'm sinning. And here's the, here's the other thing. It's not only that, but I deliberately violating what I know God forbids makes my offense more heinous. If I didn't know it was sin and I did it, that's wrong. But if I know it's sin and I still do it, that's, uh, that's kind of takes it up a, a notch. And then finally, uh, the law, though it is not evil, entices us because of our sinful nature to do evil. Um, anybody here been to a national park where they have animals at the national park? And you're driving along in the National Park and the, the sign says, do not feed the animals. What do people do? Oh, they get their bread sack out, they get their granola bars, they get their, their M&Ms or their Skittles, and they start throwing them out to the black bears at, at Smoky Mountain National Park. And then guess what? More bears come. Now, if the sign had not said, don't feed the animals, my um, guess is a lot of those people wouldn't have fed the animals. I never thought of that. You know? Don't, don't, don't walk on the grass. Oh, that sounds like a good idea. I'm going to walk on the grass. You go to a college campus, they put sidewalks in all the wrong places. They need to build the campus, no sidewalks, and then wait for two years, and then wherever the path is, that's where they need to build the sidewalk. They'd all be a diagonal. Because... See how, how sin, because we're sin in our nature, it, it accentuates because of the law, because the law tells us not to do something, and we go, oh, I'm going to do that because I'm a sinner. It accentuates it and makes it worse. Marvelously and graciously, God provided a remedy for the law's inability. Because the text says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Grace abounded all more. The sinfulness of sin makes God's gift of righteousness all the more glorious. We see how wretched we really are, then we see how marvelous and wonderful God's gift of grace is. I've said this before. I grow in my understanding of God's grace the, the more I understand how wretched I am. What a marvelous thing. Where grace, where sin abounds, Grace, and actually in the Greek, it's superabounds. And notice, so you read down this text, there's grace and it's abundant grace. It's abundance, it abounds to the many. There is God's marvelous grace. And then there is this, this gift of grace, this free gift, which means that everybody knows a gift is free, but if it's a free gift, then it just kind of compounds the freedom of it, the, the un, unmerited sense of it. And so this is, in my opinion, the law came in, To magnify the wickedness of sin, which amplifies the wonder of God's marvelous grace. How many, how many have lived in Des Moines for, you know, long enough to say that the, the amount of snow we've had here is the most we've had for a long, long time? Yeah? See, I, I mean, I came from northwest Iowa, and this is just kind of normal. You know? The, the difference is, up there, it never goes away until June. But you know what? You wait. Tomorrow, this afternoon... You're going to hear dripping. And it's 24 degrees. It's like, doesn't, doesn't God's nature know that it's supposed to be 32 before it melts? 
And I tell you what, as much snow as we have piled around here and all that snow, the power of the sun, the magnitude of the snow makes the power of the sun even more amplified because we see how offensive all this snow is maybe. And then we see the marvel of God's grace. The power of the Son, like God's gracious gift of salvation through His Son, superabounds. Every single flake of snow will be melted, just as Christ's sacrifice is sufficient to pardon the worst of sinners. The reason for God's grace to superabound is given in verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, as it ruled us in death, even so, grace would reign and rule through righteousness. Sin reigns, death, ah, that's nothing. Much more, God's grace abounds to life. There is death in Adam, there is life in Christ. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin, and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Have you received that grace? If you've never received that grace, then sin reigns in your life. And my challenge to you is to turn from your sin and to trust what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Then you will be free, free, free at last from sin and death and hell. And if you know Christ as your Savior and Lord, what a humbling thought that His grace abounds, superabounds in my wickedness so that I could be one of His children forever. And life would reign, I would reign in life. How confident that we can be that our salvation is secure and how compelled I am to say, this is good news I want to share with others. Now fitting for us to close our service by focusing on the one act of righteousness, the one act of obedience that makes provision for our redemption, the just payment of Christ so that we, uh, God's wrath against us would be satisfied in taking the bread and the juice which symbolize his sacrifice. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to take a few moments and to, and to search your heart and confess your sins and then make it your way to one of the tables and take the elements either at the table or back to your chair and take them. If you don't know Jesus, I invite you to stay seated and uh, just not make a deal of it. Uh, but more than that, I invite you to put your faith in Christ and then come and take these elements as a celebration of your new life in Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy. Lord, Take these truths and drive them home to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.